Good morning. It is, uh, it's good to be back at a place where we have to wrangle you all back from talking. We haven't, when it was just the camera, we just assumed that you were sitting down, but now I'm starting to wonder. <laughs> uh, we are here, and it is good um, to be gathered around the Word of God. Uh, so would you grab your Bibles, uh, maybe turn them on or pick them up and turn in them to the good news according to Matthew. Uh, that's, we're going to be starting at the end of chapter 9. So that's Matthew chapter 9, and we're going to start at verse 35. Um, if you don't know me, my name is uh, Kevin. I get to serve as the pastor for youth here, um, just in case you're wondering who I am. It's not really that important that you know who I am, but that's why I'm here. Um, we're, we're going to engage uh, with the Word of God, and that's the most important person that you know who is here this morning. Um, we're, we're actually going to engage with a pretty large section of this gospel. Uh, if you saw the uh, email reminder, like, we're doing 50 verses today. Yeah, so but don't worry. We're going we're to engage. We're going to pop into a couple different areas here. Um, but there is a... Uh, primary question that I want, to, want us to ask as we go through this story. Um, this, this passage that we're going through is Jesus sending the 12 disciples out. It's kind of the first place that we see all the disciples named in the story of Matthew, and he's sending them to go. And as we look at this story, I want to consider this question. The question is, how do we find our stability in an unstable world? How do we find our stability in an unstable world? And I think, I think our knee-jerk reaction, uh, our, even a knee-jerk Christian reaction might be to say, like, our identity. Uh, we need to find out who we are. Um, problem is I sometimes find that one difficult to answer uh, because that's a tough question to answer. Who am I? <laughs> what, what does it mean to ask, who am I? Uh, to consider, like, who I am. Is it what I do? Is it what I accomplish? Um, I think we probably actually all find our answer, like our answer to where we find our stability, and maybe a different question. Um, I think we find our answer in the question, what am I for? Uh, and I think we all kind of have an answer for that question. What am I for? And the answers range. Uh, for some, the answer is just simply, I am for relaxation. I'm for a stress-free retirement in Arizona. Or maybe I'm for the enjoyment of good foods. <laughs> uh, or perhaps I'm for the alleviation of poverty. Or I'm for answering the mysteries of epigenetic methylation patterns. Or I'm for being a really good dad. Whatever our aspirations are, whether they seem high or low, I think we all have some underlying script, some mission statement for our lives. Um, I know many of you ride the SkyTrain or bus, and we go as a youth group downtown uh, about every couple of months for some collaborative youth events. Inevitably, I'm riding the train, and I'm walking up and down the car just making sure we don't lose any kids along the way. And inevitably, the car will lurch and like, grab my balance. What do I instinctively do? 
I, I grasp for the, the grasp bar, whatever, the hold bar. I don't know what it's called, but I grab for that thing. I'm looking for the thing that I know will not move, and I find security in that. And that's what we often and perhaps always do when we find ourselves destabilized. We search again for our purpose statement, and we really hope that that will give us stability. Um, if the whole saga of the last couple of years has shown us anything, look, it's that, right? That when our normal is decentered and off-balanced, we all rush to reevaluate what we are for. So we take up the banner of one cause or the other. We, we join in with a bunch of people who maybe like agree with us on that, and we say, this is now what I am for. This is what I'm about. And that's why large, like universal, all-encompassing narratives kind of tend to emerge during seasons of instability. Particularly when terrible things happen to us, we anxiously want it to mean something. We don't want to live in a world where instantly, for seemingly no reason, our lives can just be disrupted. It's easier to have an enemy or someone to blame it's more comforting to be the victim of a system or to be the leader of a revolution because these all give us some sense of stability, a purpose, what we are for, or we hope that they do. And I think this is precisely the scene that Jesus looks upon as he begins to speak in this next section of Matthew. Just imagine, there's a huge crowd that's swarming Jesus. They're sick. They're afflicted by evil spirits, they're oppressed by an evil government, and they're looking for a purpose statement too. They're hoping for a king to overthrow Rome, but they're also tired of waiting for a king to overthrow Rome. Some of the zealots, they're hoping to tear down Rome themselves. Some are frustrated at those zealots because they just keep poking the beast. The Pharisees think that, well, if people would just listen to the word of God, then maybe God would finally help us out. The Sadducees figure that, you know, co-governing with Rome, that might be like a good lesser of two evils. Matthew, the tax collector, uh, he figured that when in Rome, be like the Romans, right? And they're all trying to find their stability, their story, their purpose in different directions. And they're just like us. Um, kind of like, you know, those fish in that scene of Finding Nemo and then the trawling net, and they're all going in different directions. Um, Jesus looks at them and looks at us and calls them harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And that's when Jesus rolls up his sleeves. <laughs> Praise God. Would you stand with me as you read um, the first part of our passage this morning? Matthew 9, verse 35. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. 
Uh, thank you for your servant, Matthew, who recalled it and wrote it down. Lord, may the meditations of our heart, Lord, may the words of my mouth be pleasing to you. May we experience your compassion on us, and may that overflow from this place out. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may take a seat. The, the scholar, uh, Don Carson, he tells a story of when he was young in ministry. He, I think he was a youth pastor, and he was tired. Um, there's no parallels there. Uh, but he, <laughs> he was uh, a busy, busy season, busy week, and uh, one of his pastors, his mentor, is like, you know what, Don, we need to take a break. Um, so at the end, at the end of the day, Friday, we're going to go up out of town to this secluded little watering hole, uh, this secret little forest glade uh, lake where we can go for a nice swim. Be far away from everything. We can just relax, enjoy the beautiful July heat. So he was pretty excited. And so they got up after, after their work day, went up, got their towels, I'm sure, maybe some sunscreen if they're like me, and go to the watering hole and to his dismay, there was like a high school party there. <laughs> and the music was loud, the alcohol was flowing, it was chaos. And poor Don was just like, oh my goodness. And he was about to kind of let loose. He's like upset, frustrated, and he turns to his friend Ken. And he recalls the story and says, but before the words of venom could leave my mouth, I looked and saw Ken's expression. And it was one of like hope and like dreaming. And he just was standing there, and he says, wow, high school students, what a mission field. <laughs> they were both looking at the same situation, <laughs> but they perhaps had different purposes, right? Uh, Ken was actually, he was taking a vacation to help him with his ministry. <laughs> Needed to take a little bit of a break, to rest, to do more. Don was kind of like, finally, I, the rest I deserve, perspective changed a little bit after this encounter, though. Jesus comes to the crown, and Jesus knows what he is for. Exhausted. Um, if you've been paying attention the last two chapters, all he's been doing is dealing with people coming to him, healing their diseases, helping them, teaching them, and he is tired, and then he sees this group of people like sheep without a shepherd, and he knows what he is for, and what they need, and they need to be shepherded. And so, it's time for these people to be shepherded, and for the shepherd to begin his work. He looks at them, looks at this group of people, and he looks, he looks at little old me, and he sees my attempts at finding stability, and glory to God, he has compassion on me, he has compassion on these people. He knows what he is for. And it's the same thing that he, it's King Jesus, this is him. It's the same thing that he, as Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has always been about, to bless his people so that the world might be blessed through them, and that they might know that he is their God and they are his people. And they are finally ready for this to happen. You might have recognized this verse that we read. You may have, I think we read that one before. Um, we did. Um, it's actually the same verse as 
three, four, five chapters earlier. It was in, it was in four, right before the Beatitudes. Um, and actually, if you keep your, if you've got your Bibles, stay, stay open to 935 and read 935 while I read Matthew 423. So this is what Jesus said in 423, but then compare this. It says, Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and illness among the people. Did Matthew just like accidentally hit copy and paste? <laughs> like, what's, what's he doing? <laughs> well, remember, guys, that this is, isn't just Matthew's stream of consciousness retelling. This is his well-crafted, intended, true story of the life of Jesus Christ, the king, the long-awaited fulfillment of all the hopes of history. So Matthew's repeating this theme, remember? He's about to just introduce now uh, Jesus' second major address, which, by the way, those are kind of like flag points in the book of Matthew, is Jesus' public addresses. First one is the Sermon on the Mount. This next one is Matthew 10. And Matthew says, before we read this, it's important we're reminded what Jesus is all about, what he is doing. He's teaching in the synagogues. He's proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and he's healing every sickness and disease because this is good news. Help is on the way. In fact, it is almost here. Things are about to change because Jesus is on the scene, because the king is approaching, and now he's about to commission his emissaries. Jesus looks at these people, and he knows that it is just the right time. The harvest is ready. The goal of all of history, we've been waiting, we've been waiting, we've been waiting for Jesus to come on the scene and send out. This is like if you had a race, <laughs> and all of this story of the Old Testament has been waiting for the gun to fire. Like, okay, are, are we ready yet? Are we ready, to, are we ready to go yet? Are we ready to go? He's like, hold on, hold on, now. And he calls his disciples, and he says, come on, guys. He calls to the 12. He says, Peter and Andrew, James and John, Philip, Bartholomew, Thomas, Matthew, James, Thaddeus, Simon, and Judas. It's time. You are going to be the first workers of this harvest, the first ambassadors of this new kingdom that's coming. It's time, guys. So then Jesus moves into this fascinating chapter. He gives his 12 really specific instructions. And as we pay attention through these, you're going to realize, and we're going to go like faster than, don't, don't look at the time, we'll be fine. Um, when Jesus looks at these, we start off, and it's clear, Jesus is sending them kind of on this like two-week, like go out, do your thing. Um, but as we read through the passage, we go, oh, hold on, this is more than just Jesus giving them two weeks of instructions. <laughs> um, as we look, he keeps talking, and you realize that Jesus is not just giving them instructions for the next two weeks. He's giving them a mission for life. You can tell because he actually starts to tell them about the end of their lives. He starts to tell them about the end of history. He tells them these things as the new ambassadors of good news. They may not realize it yet, but Jesus is giving them a new answer to the question, what am I for? And if they do their job right, everyone will begin to get a new answer to that question, too. So are you ready? Jesus is going to send them on this mission of compassion like his. Um, and as we go through, we're going to see he gives them a cause. 
gives them a caution, and then he gives them comfort. A cause, caution, and comfort. Okay, well, before I'm just like, oh, this is like the starting gun, you know. Before we get to that, I, I want to flash forward a couple hundred years <laughs> and, and see how did this all turn out. Um, so we're going to flash forward to the year 155 to a fella named Polycarp. So if you're looking for kid names, there you go. Uh, and the year's 155. And the, the Roman government is not um, actively finding and persecuting Christians, but they're not treating them very well. And if you're accused as a Christian of not worshiping the gods of Rome, um, then it's trouble for you. And then you're going to be persecuted, arrested. And this is what happened to the group of, this group of Christians of who this guy Polycarp is a part. And you may have heard of him. He's uh, pretty infamous, like in a good way. He's whatever the famous, that's what you say. Uh, <laughs> um, he's the next generation after the apostles. So we're kind of seeing what was the effect of Jesus' words. And so he's, he's brought together with his group, and they've said, hey, you have got to renounce this Jesus and start worshiping these Roman gods, or at least just like, acknowledge the fact that these Roman gods are gods, because otherwise we're going to have to get rid of it. Well, Polycarp has been old. He is the, the bishop of the churches in Smyrna. He's the pastor to the pastors for all these churches. He has served God his, his whole life. He loves the Lord, and great things have been done on his, because of him. And so they're looking at this man, this old man, and the judge is feeling bad. He's like, I don't want to like, I don't want to kill this guy or torture him, but he also needs to give up this Jesus thing. And to him, it looks crazy. Why would this guy, he's old, he could just retire nicely in Rome, <laughs> do something more productive with the rest of his life. So he urges him, he's like, would you, just, would you just swear by the emperor and curse Christ? If you do, you will be free to go. old man Polycarp, he replies, he says, for, for 86 years I have served him, and he has done me no evil. Could I curse my king who saved me? And so the conversation goes on, and the judge threatened to burn Polycarp alive. And Polycarp said, that's okay. Like, the fire that you might burn me with, it's only temporary. But the, the fires of actually being separated from my king for eternity, those are eternal. And so after this back and forth and back and forth of trying to get Polycarp to give up, they put him to the stake. And as the flames begin, he, he prays, Lord, sovereign God, I thank you that you have deemed me worthy of this moment so that jointly with your martyrs, I may have a share in the cup of Christ's suffering. For this, I bless and glorify you. Amen. And those are the words of like a generation right after Jesus' words here. So what, what is it that happened? What changed between these sheep without a shepherd, this chaotic, misaligned, grasping for anything that seems stable, and our brother Polycarp, who is immovably committed to Jesus and the good news of his Savior. What made him so both involved in this world and so uninvolved? 
I think he knew what he was for. And you'll notice that that is precisely how Matthew has been training us through this letter. Yeah, I said training. Did you know that Matthew has been training you (laughs) through this letter? Uh, And he's just getting started, by the way. All throughout, he's been weaving us in and out of the story of Jesus' life. Do you remember a year ago when we were in the Beatitudes? Jesus began to teach us what? About the kingdom and about the expectations of the kingdom. How it's upside down. How what we would expect uh, of the world will be different than what we expect of the kingdom. So he says, uh, when you experience all these things, you need to know, like Polycarp, you're not crazy, even when the world seems to say that you are. When you're mourning because you see the vision of what could be, you're not crazy. That's exactly what you should expect if you're in the kingdom. You know what you should expect? You should expect that you'll be merciful if you're part of the kingdom because you've received so much mercy. Jesus gives us the expectations of what we can expect once this kingdom starts to take place. Okay, and then Jesus starts to lay out the values of the kingdom. In the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, he explains how everything in the Old Testament prophets are all pointing toward um, who Jesus is and what the kingdom is like. The values of the kingdom. Hey, you've heard it said, don't murder. I, what I was trying to, what you were supposed to be formed was into people who wouldn't have the anger that would lead to murder. So he gives them the expectations for the kingdom, tells them the values of the kingdom, and then starts to actually demonstrate that the kingdom is not just ideological, but real. That he's actually the king that he said he was. Um, we heard a couple of weeks ago, Jesus said, look, if It's easy for me to say your sins are forgiven. I need to show you that I actually have the authority to do so. So he goes for the next two chapters, just healing, casting out demons, showing that he has the authority that he actually says he has. That when he says, these are the values of the kingdom, I am the king who is bringing it about. These people, without a shepherd, they've been looking everywhere for a king. They've been looking for any possibility. I mean, we have too. Looking for one who would give us stability, give us a story. But they're lost and they're desperate. And so, like perhaps no other time in history, do they know that they need somebody to shepherd them. So Jesus says the harvest is ready. If you've ever uh, eaten an avocado, you know that produce is only ripe for a very short window of time. (laughs) This is Jesus' moment. We've been like waiting, waiting, waiting. Like, okay, maybe this is only me who's experienced this. When every time I buy an avocado, I never buy an avocado anymore because every time I do, I'm always like waiting for it to be finally ripe enough to eat it, but not so ripe that it's turned black. Maybe this is, I'm just journaling verbally here, but I find this stressful. (laughs) So he's got, um, the harvest is ready. And Jesus says, this is the moment. There's a window of time, and this is it. There's a harvest here. It's plentiful, and we need workers. The people are ready to be invited to the kingdom, and it's time. And I wonder, do you actually believe what Jesus did? That the kingdom of God is actually at hand. Do we believe that the time is short and the kingdom of heaven is at hand? 
I had uh, the profound honor to preach my granddad's funeral last February. Um, there are not many people that I know, if any, who longed for heaven like my granddad did. There were times when it was almost annoying how much he seemed to talk about how he couldn't wait to get to heaven. And I know that I'm not the only one who experienced that with him. He just overflowed with the desire to see his ultimate hope face to face. And to many people, that seemed crazy. Um, there's that phrase, you know, about being so heavenly-minded that you're of no earthly good. But anyone who knew Don Warren knows that he did a great deal of earthly good. Um, as I reflected upon his life, it became more and more clear to me that his earthly good was not in spite of, but in fact because of the fact that he was so heavenly-minded. For Don, being a loving and devoted husband, an honest worker, a caring son, a wise mentor, a dear friend, these were all the overflow, the natural outpouring of someone whose mind was fixed on what and whom he was for. When I learned to ride my bike, my dad taught me that you need to look at your goal and where you intend to end up. Because the temptation is to pay attention to what's going on immediately around us, right? To stare at the ground as it whizzes past looking for pebbles, stones, and hazards. But if you do that, like, you might do some good bicycling, but you'll never make it to your goal. You'll get some distance, but eventually, dizzy, frustrated, and far from your goal, you'll wobble and fall down, discouraged, with scraped knees, Granddad didn't let the temporary be his focus, but he set his sights on heavenly things, eternal things. And because he did, he made it. He arrived at his goal. Uh, a cemetery like no other place reminds us of the temporariness of life on earth and of the inevitability of death. Granddad's office appointments, his frustrations in traffic, even his cravings for peanut butter, all seemed like trivial things at his funeral. And oh, what a tragedy his death would have been if his whole life was wrapped up, not in the eternal, but the temporary. But do we believe this? In the text that follows here, Jesus proceeds to give his 12 disciples instructions. And friends, I encourage you to dive deep into this chapter. Um, we could spend the next month just studying this section, um, but we also want to be careful that we don't spend 30 years in the Gospel of Matthew. Um, guys, praise God that we have eternity to study him and his word and his character. But for the meantime... As we scan this, this next section, I, I want to highlight some of the training that Jesus does in this chapter. And actually, we know based on some of the recorded letters that we have that uh, Polycarp received some of this training himself, that he was actually engaging with this very training that Jesus was giving to his disciples. In some of the language of the letters that he wrote that we saw preserved, he's quoting some of this. I'd encourage us to take some of this training to heart ourselves. You'll notice the instructions that Jesus gives through this chapter. Um, all are there to seek to stop us from defaulting to our own purpose statements. They're all challenges to our own desires of what we are for. 
So he's given us a cause. <laughs> the kingdom is here, and you need to go spread it. And here's his cautions. First, in verse 5, he tells them, like, hey, stay away. Like, don't, don't be to too focused on going to Samaria right now and to the Gentiles. Just focus on Jerusalem. Uh, there's a bunch of stuff going on there. But uh, one of the things that some commentators point out is that the disciples are fresh off of the whole woman at the well in Samaria, <laughs> where Jesus' ministry, like, blew up. And I think the temptation for the disciples and for us is to just, like, A-B test uh, how we do ministry. Like, hey, it really worked well. Successful. Let's just trace the success. And Jesus says, no, no, no. Like, listen to me. Follow me. Hear my voice. It's not about your success. <laughs> it's about following as an ambassador to the kingdom. In verse 7, then he, he so we're just going to fly through here. In verse, verse 7, he tells them, okay, now as you go, do what? He says, preach the good news. Yes. He says, show that, like, demonstrate that you have the authority over what you're talking about. Heal the sick. Cast out demons. Um, bring health and healing with you. But make sure you preach the good news. That's what you are about. Go preach the good news. The temptation is to just, wow, this is great. People love us. We're doing all the miracles. This is great. We bring the kingdom. This is healing that is also mirroring the spiritual healing that's going on. Okay, verse 8, the third thing. He says, freely you have received, freely give. This next section is all about avoiding using this as a wealth-building scenario. Because again, what do we think we're for? It's very easy to get distracted along the wealth train <laughs> and the leisure and pleasure train. We're like, oh, you know what? Hey, I'm actually like, people are paying me to do this. This is pretty good. No, he says, no, don't, don't collect stuff. Your point is not to collect a whole bunch of equipment and things. Freely you have received, now freely give. Okay, verse 11 to 15. He says, some are not going to listen to you. And that's okay. You have the responsibility to actually share the good news of this kingdom with the people. And some are not going to listen to you. And that'll be okay. That is between them and the Lord. Do your best. Share the news. And once you've done what you can, you can move on. Verse 16 says, be on your guard. Um, the kind of vibe in this is your covert ops. Be wise. Be aware. He says, I am sending you out like sheep among wolves. We heard this language before when he's talking about false prophets. He says, I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves, so be uh, shrewd as serpents and gentle as doves, innocent as doves. Just be wise. I mean, uh, in the story of Polycarp, uh, one of the things that he does, he listens to the wisdom, of, for a while, like, they're like, should we, maybe we should, like, hide for a little bit from the Romans who are chasing us, and they're kind of assessing the situations as they go and trying to follow the wisdom of the Lord as they go, but not be paranoid about it. Um, I think that's the... The phrase that I really appreciate uh, from one of the commentators is, is that they're being prudent but not paranoid. We want to be aware of the world that's around us, be smart, but not be gripped by the fear that every decision that we make is uh, something we need to analyze. Uh, verse 17, he promises this persecution. And this is maybe a scary bit for us. Uh, I went uh, camping kind of in some backcountry area, and I, I did the weird thing of, that maybe 
I don't know if it was the wise thing, but I looked, it probably was the wise thing, but I looked online to, <laughs> to see about like outdoor safety stuff and it was telling me about, I was looking up grizzly bear stuff and I was reading the whole thing about grizzly bear safety and uh, one of the things that it, it talks about is like when the bear is about to charge you and attack you. And I won't go all into it all, but, <laughs> but basically it says the point, it's like, okay, when, when it's staring at you and it's like scraping its paw on the ground, it says, at this point, it will begin to consume you. <laughs> I was like, and this is like the night before I went camping. I was like, oh no, oh no. Perhaps, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if this is what's going on here, but it, it, it almost feels like that place where Jesus is going, hey, you will be taken. You are going to be brought in front of the leaders of the synagogues. You're going to be brought before emperors. You're going to be beaten. This is what happened to Polycarp. People are going to hate you because of me. Are you surprised? <laughs> this is exactly what you'd expect if you are the bringers of peace in a kingdom opposed to that peace. Jesus says, they, they actually called me the devil, so why do you think as my followers they're going to be easier on you? More, he, he's upping the ante here. Verse 34 to 37. He says that even your family can't be a priority. What you're for, it, your family is important. You need to know that. But he says that, that cannot be the goal. What, what may even happen is your families will be divided for the sake of pursuing Christ. In fact, not even your life can be your priority. Uh, that's how he concludes in 38, uh, verse 38 there. Um, He says, whoever finds their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. Friends, as much as we like to be uh, unique, and as much as we all have, as much as we all have unique flavors that we bring to our Christian walk, the answer for each one of us in terms of our purpose is getting narrower. Christian, what are you for? You're not for success. You're not for the accumulation of wealth. You're not for being influential and listened to. You're going to be hated. You're not even for just making a perfect family. Uh, if you'll allow us to turn to the end of our training manual here in Matthew 28, we'll see the, the end of our training trajectory, the end of our plan what is the one thing that every Christian can confidently say is their call? At the end of an interaction with the life of Jesus, you should be ready to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. Do you believe do you actually believe that the kingdom of God is at hand? Friends, the blind see, the lame walk, the dead live. Do you believe it? Do you believe that the king is on the throne? How ought this to change our priorities, our attitudes, and our prayers? Do we have the compassion of Jesus? 
Do we look at this chaotic world and feel compassion that drives us to action? Are we praying for more workers to take in the harvest? Are we ready to go out and collect the harvest? Brothers and sisters, uh, you, you know, being a pastor or a missionary or a chaplain isn't more beneficial to the kingdom than being a tradesperson or a CEO or a customer service rep or a professor. But no matter what your profession and no matter what your current task at hand, each and every one of us must ask that question. If what I am for is to go and make disciples, how am I doing? We are not the only ones who are frantic, who are sheep without a shepherd. But for those of us who are Christians here this morning, we're gathered here today because the Lord has shown compassion on us. He's rescued us from our own mission statements to bring us true stability. The one whom scripture elsewhere calls the anchor for our souls. May God have mercy on us if we intend to simply just rest content that at least we have been brought into the compassion of the king. Our hearts rightfully burn within us as we see injustices across the globe. If the new king is truly on his throne, and has he not shown us that he is, ought we not be scurrying around the enemy territory, running around whispering to the captives, help us on the way? Guys, you'll find out shortly that the king has won. And you are welcome to join us. In fact, we'll put you in the parade of victory. Our king overflows with compassion. He's invited us to join his cause. He has given us caution to keep our eyes focused on the right thing, and he gives us comfort. Jesus tells us, don't be afraid. The world will think you're crazy, but I am with you. When you find yourself about to lose your life for me, I'll give you the words that you need. And the testimony of the church, he did for Stephen. He did for James. He did for Polycarp. He did for a guy named Sanctus. Don't be afraid. They can harm your body. They shermed harmed Christ's. They can kill your body. They killed his. But why be afraid of them? Is it not better to live in the light of the one who is king over your whole life? Isn't it better to live in light of the one who raised Christ from the grave? 1 Corinthians says that when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come to pass. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? He cares for you. He has not sent you out on your own. He has not sent you to be tormented. He has sent you on a compassionate mission on which he is joining you. He promises that he is so intimately connected with his disciples that the tiniest circumstance that they experience will be one that he shares with them. He says, even when they give you a glass of cold water, I'm there with you receiving that. So how are we going to respond? What are we for? I invite the music team to come up. Um, there, there's an old tradition of using questions and responses to learn about what it means to be a Christian. Uh, these are called catechisms. 
Uh, one of these collections, the Heidelberg Catechism, opens with this question. What is your only hope in life and in death? Do you know what the answer is? That I am not my own, but belong body, soul, in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him.